Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. I'm Himra Chenault, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Lanta Carroll, interim pastor of Families in Formation. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations. Because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Avenue, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit. Where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds, and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. now. Uh, My experiences really can best be described when I think about money and um, being used as a cover for safety to protect the most vulnerable. Um, When I think about the history of my ancestors, money was um, quite often itself an organizing tool, regardless of who had it and how much they had of it. Um, Even during enslavement, post-antebellum war era, the word money might have been equivalent to the phrase, just enough. Mm. Little became just enough to survive and put food on the table or clothes on your backs. And if you had none, usually family shared with you. Um, Money was my grandmother leaving her front porch door open, always answering the phone. Anytime somebody came by asking for food or a little pocket change, she would say, come on in, baby. Did you eat? Have some. Have some. Mm -hmm. Even uh, her, a poor sharecropper, a descendant of enslaved Africans, my grandmother found generosity. Yes. Always. What she offered was more than money could actually buy. In Montgomery, it it was the spirit of resisting to be seen as three-fifths of a person, refusing Mm. to take the bus and walking to work for over a year, knowing it took money to make money, people journeyed to jobs on a path that should have easily worn down their souls and their souls, Mm. but tired was a cost of freedom. Mm. Wealth, on the other hand, is really not a big part of my vocabulary. Black Americans are not accustomed to the kind of wealth and the kind of money um, that might lead to being called wealthy, from the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to a racial wealth gap that's more like a cavity that's so deeply rooted and infested, it it stinks, it hurts. The median income of Black Americans is 50% less now than it was 30 years ago. Uh, And both Black and Latinx families have 4%, 4% of the wealth that white families have. So I I reflect on the legacy of slavery and all its manifestations, the caging of people and children and animals too, that can and must be abolished. Mm. Even the withholding of reparations for black, brown, and indigenous folks, it makes the word wealth not only difficult for me to say, but hard to comprehend the true meaning or even imagine what it looks like. What I think and feel about money and power are really indications of my theology and my theopolitics. Mm. Money is not freedom to me. Wealth is not liberation. Mm. Neither have been secured for the wide majority of people who look like me. So how can I begin to fathom that relationship to power? Mm. 
And that power, if it's at all tangible or real, it really lies in the hands of my ancestor spirit in resisting empire mm-hmm. and making intercommunal amends toward collective wealth building, Amen. not just in terms of dollars and cents, but in the ability to dream and establish new ways of living that could break free from anything that money could limit or suppress. And if there's anything I find hope in and how to exist in a world that puts people, that puts profit over people and the planet, mm-hmm. it's that story of an Afro-Semitic Palestinian refugee hey. who had good news to bring to the poor, he said, mm-hmm. and who set all kinds of captives free, even those who didn't know they needed it. I don't have faith in capitalism. That system upholds oppressive power dynamics over every one of us. That system fails me every day, but I do have faith in the power to overturn such a system in a way that brings life far beyond what money or wealth could even measure. And flipping money changing tables is more my thing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus being true to his word. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Marthame Sanders. My pronouns are he, him, his, and it is an honor to be with you this morning as a fellow sojourner. Would you pray with me? Holy One, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are strength. You alone are our safety. In Christ's name, amen. So as you've already heard today, we're wrapping up our preaching series talking about the stories we tell, and we have already heard from Pastor Henra and Pastor Lanta and Pastor Darcy about uh, some of the parables of Jesus, specifically the parable of the lost son, the parable of the banquet, and the parable of the sower, as we've also heard testimonies from Deacon Nikki Roberts and Josh Chandler and Leah Allen as these amazing voices as we together speak as those who seek to follow Jesus. Um, Today, as I step into this role, uh, I am reminded that we have done this with in mind that stories matter and why they matter, because the stories we tell shape the way that we encounter the world. And I also want to know my appreciation for the fact that we call this a word from a fellow sojourner here at Park Ave because that's all that this is, honestly. I can only encounter this story from my own context. Even if we are telling the same stories, we receive them, or in Lance's word, we keep them based on our context because our contexts are different. And Leah, you have very helpfully given note to that in terms of your story, how you encounter sort of particular stories of money and wealth and what that means and how I encounter them. Whether we come from places of uh, uh, privilege or marginalization or intersections thereof, we do not come to these stories as blank slates. We bear the hopes and the scars of the world. We carry with us the stories that we have already been told about ourselves, about God, and about one another. So the hope, I believe, is to tell better stories. I've got to give a nod to my friend Melvin Bray for that one. To tell better stories so that we might join with God in co-creating 
a better world. So, at the risk of over oversimplifying what parables are about, they operate at two levels. On one level, something is revealed about God because of the behavior of one of the characters in the story. That's one level. And on the other level, parables offer a kind of moral lesson about the way we ought to behave in the world. And in both cases, these are stories ultimately about the world that God desires. We use different words for this. The kingdom in older patriarchal language, the rule of God, the kingdom of God. I like the phrase, the world that God desires. I, I love the way that that plays out. What is particularly noteworthy in the parables that we tell is that commendable behavior in the parable is behavior that would seem really odd in the world in which we live, which means that we have a long way to go to line up this world with the world that God desires. So let's take a closer look at our parable today. It's the parable of the compassionate employer, which is a title I'm lifting from the late scholar Kenneth Bailey. Throughout the day in the parable, the employer heads back into the town. Thank you very much. I do. Thank you. <laughs> so throughout the day, the employer heads into the town square five different times to hire day laborers for the vineyard. Now, there's a couple of things that are odd about this behavior. Of course, there's the fact that the workers who, uh, the workers are all paid the same no matter how many hours they work, and we'll get to that in a second because it's a critical point. Did you also notice that the employer is the one who goes to the marketplace? The employer has a steward in their employ. The steward is the one that pays the workers at the end of the day. And in the normal world, in the real world, the steward would also be the one going to get more and more laborers for the vineyard. So there's something about this employer that's different that requires further inspection. And the employer knows how many workers are needed, probably the number of workers that were picked up on that first visit to the town square, and yet the employer returns again and again and again to find more workers. Is there suddenly more work? Probably, definitely not. There's something else going on. And if we linger on this idea that the employer is God's stand-in in the story, then we learn something critical about God's character. That is, that God is deeply invested in our well-being. So invested that God's very self in the story and in reality is the one that returns again and again and again to the town squares and the marketplaces of this world so that we might find purpose in God and come to understand that we, we have value, that we are worthy. Dignity is not something we earn or is bestowed upon us by other people. It is something we deserve because we are beloved of God, because we bear that sacred imprint of God on our very selves. So notice how the payment of the workers in the parable reinforces this point about basic dignity and worth 
First, there is the amount of pay. The ones who only work for an hour, those latecomers to the vineyard, they get paid just as much as the long-timers, those who put in 12 solid hours in the vineyard. Second, there's the order of pay. The employer is very specific about this order, first in, last out. So think about that. Let's, let's linger on that a little bit. Imagine the workers gathered around waiting to get paid. So with each payment, those who worked more expect to get paid more. And yet they get paid the exact same amount. If the order had been reversed, if the employer had decided that those who worked the longest got paid first, nobody probably would have gotten angry. The 12-hour workers would have been paid and then they would have left. They wouldn't know that the, the nine-hour and the six-hour and the three-hour and the one-hour workers got paid the same. There wouldn't have been this confrontation. There wouldn't have been a scene, a complaint. But the conflict is there to illustrate a point. There's no pulling rank in the kingdom of heaven. Now, those who first heard Jesus tell this story would have understood this as a very deliberate critique of the Pharisees. They were the religious protectorate of the day. And they saw themselves as the keepers of the flame of faith. Jesus and his band of misfits, meanwhile, are newcomers to the game. So while it may be true that the Pharisees do have longevity in their corner, the parable is saying that those who follow Jesus deserve grace just as much. And as time goes by, this parable continued to challenge the assumptions of people of faith from generation to generation, those hearers who tried to fashion their own meritocracy of grace. The early disciples would have been forced to admit that those followers of the way, the name by which the early Christians were known, those ones who had never actually met Jesus personally, still deserved that same measure of grace. The same could be said for folks who were born into Christianity, those who converted into Christianity, charter members of churches, and first-time visitors, y'all. In fact, drawing lines at all becomes at best a shaky proposition in the shadow of this parable. The stories we tell and the ways we interpret and apply them have a direct impact on the way we interact with others and with the world around us. So this is the point at which those two levels, how we see God and how we ought to behave, they kind of collapse in on one another because what these parables say to us about God should say something to us about the way we ought to live. And that also brings this very funky tension into the life of faith. On the one hand, there's this radical leveling of human value in the eyes of God. Everyone gets paid a day's wage in the parable. And at the same time, there are implications for what faithful behavior looks like. And yet, discerning those behavioral norms can easily slide us back into those same patterns that undercut, undercut the truth of this basic human value, that we end up deciding who's in and who's out. We establish rank in the kingdom of God. 
We've got to hold those things in tension and remember that the story we tell matters and how that story encourages us to treat others matters. Now, we cannot avoid the fact that this parable is about money. And while Jesus is using money as an allegory for grace, for dignity, for worth, he's also talking about it as money. Now, when we talk about money here at Park Ave, we usually end up talking about, and rightly so, and Leah, you have underscored for us again the importance of talking about money this way, the fact that we are dealing with a capitalist system that is brutally unjust and that that system has infected our theology. We should talk about that. We should do something about that. And we also tend not to talk about our personal relationship with money? I, I get that. Y'all, churches do not have a good track record when it comes to talking about money. Or handling it, thank you. The, 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 easy, the easy poster child for this is the prosperity gospel, which is really just a pyramid scheme, right? The same is true of what we might call moral money laundering by churches right? Wherein we encourage generosity and we praise generosity without questioning how that wealth was gathered in the first place. So friends, if we have been eating church money junk food, a church money cleanse makes a lot of sense. And here's the problem. When it comes to stuff that Jesus likes to talk about, Number one is the kingdom of God. And number two, money. I'm pretty sure I don't need to remind you, and Leah has already done a great job of talking about the gross inequities at work in wealth and in income. And I'm fairly confident that we're aware, well aware of the role that history, white supremacy, male dominance, heteronormativity have all played the role in the legal framework in propping these realities. And that wealth gap between white families and families of color is significant. It makes a difference in the freedoms with which we are able to live in the world. And here's a sobering statistic for us to consider. Any of us in this room, and I don't pretend to know much about our finances as people in this room. Any of us in this room who earn more than $32,400 a year are in the top 1% globally in terms of earners. Did y'all hear that? Now, wealth is a whole different topic, and it's an important topic. This is just a stat about income, and it's a critical one for us to hear. Any of us who make more than $32,400 a year are in the top 1% globally, not in the United States, but globally, when it comes to income. So when we acknowledge that the system is corrupt and brutal and unjust, we should confront, tackle, and correct that injustice. And... We need to admit that some of us, this fellow sojourner included, benefit from its current state. 
So if we see this through the lens of our parable, we might be tempted to put ourselves in the position of the workers, and there is good reason to do so. And yet some of us need to recognize that the employer is a better fit for our financial condition. So if this story is a story about being better in order to co-create a better world, then it has very real implications for the world in which we live. The vineyard owners, the employers of this world have a moral obligation to support the well-being of all workers. And they, we, should take care of the town squares and the marketplaces in which we live. That means advocating for fair pay, a living wage, corporate taxes that don't dodge the burden but share and shoulder it, fighting against unjust systems, building systems that encourage faithful, life-affirming economic behavior. What would it look like to build a system that is actually not about individual decisions about money and wealth and power, but a collective system of money and wealth and power? In this moment, this also means taking a long, hard look at our own financial pictures. Have you heard the phrase, budgets are moral documents? It's often talked about with the U.S. government. I first heard it from Jim Wallace. It's been attributed to Martin Luther King. Apparently, Mike Pence even said it. That said, it's a helpful way of looking at money, I think. What does our household budget say about our morals? What about our church budget? If someone was to look at my bank account or my credit card statement, what would they know about me as a result? What would they know about what I value? Does what I value reflect what we value? Friends, from one fellow sojourner to another, my hope is that we would all remember that we tell these stories in order to see the world in better ways and better possibilities. And if we live these stories out, we will co-create the world that God desires. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta across the street from Grant Park at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into the world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God who created you loves you and empowers you. To love boldly. Live inclusively. And to serve creatively. Amen. Amen.